0: Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast, brought to you by the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Svi Hirschfeld, and I'm excited to be here with you each week for a thoughtful and engaging discussion about the weekly Torah portion. Each episode, I'll be joined by a wonderful faculty member from Pardes to dive deep into the text, exploring its relevance and insights for our lives today. We will aspire to be creative, personal, and a little brave as we leave no stone unturned, seeking to bring out meaning and significance from each Parsha. And here's a request from us. If you enjoy our conversations, please take a moment to leave a five-star review for the podcast. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important discussions. So whether you're a seasoned Torah scholar or a curious beginner, we invite you to join us on this journey of learning and discovery. With that, let's dive in and explore this week's Parsha together. Hello, everyone. To all of our new listeners, welcome. To all of our previous listeners, welcome back. We are already up to Parshat Korach. Time is flying. And this is Svi Hirschfeld, as per usual. And I am blessed, and you are, to be here with my colleague and friend, Sefi Kraut. Welcome, Sefi.
1: Thank you, Tvi. Glad to be here.
0: She really is. I think the smile is genuine, folks, but it's not always so easy to tell. So, Here we are at this Parsha, and we're in a tough point in the book of Bamidbar, I would say, right? That the book of Bamidbar started off, we're all ready, we're forming how to go into the land with the Mishkan at the center and all these instructions, how we move, how we go. And then it feels like the wheels start to fall off the bus, right? Let's remember what happens. There's complaints, and then there's complaints about meat. And it seems to culminate with the episode of Spies last week, where now we found out how many years are going to be in the desert now,
1: Sefi? It's going to be 40.
0: It's going to be 40. That's a long time to be in the desert. And not only that, but everyone over the age of 18 not gonna cross the finish line. So here we are, maybe that's an important context what's happening in Korach, because Korach begins, of course, with a form of rebellion. So Sefi, now that I've taken up so much of our time, what's happening here? Who is aggrieved? Why are they aggrieved? What's going on?
1: All of those questions are very reasonable, reasonable questions in any kind of story. You want to understand who the protagonists are, what their point of views are, what their perspectives are. And part of the challenge, I think, in Parshat Korach is that the text is not explicit about any of those issues. We hear a few names and then we hear a group of people. What are they aggrieved about is not entirely clear. So we have to kind of unpack that mystery and let's give it a shot.
0: Great. So you're going to now lay out for us what's happening now. Who are these different parties and what do they want?
1: Right. Okay. So the Parsha is called Parshat Korach and starts with this man named Korach, who is from the tribe of Levi and the first cousin of Moshe and Aharon.
0: Uh oh, family, family politics.
1: That's right. This is as real world as it gets, this Parsha. There's nothing uh, you can hide from. And here, the text is not totally clear about what Korach wants, but it is pretty clear that he is interested in rebelling against the leadership of Moshe who has control over the political leadership and Aaron, Moshe's brother, who has the control over the priesthood, the religious leadership.
0: Okay, so help us understand here. So Korach, from what you're describing, is like this organizer, okay, but there are these subgroups. Right. And help us understand who the subgroups are and what they want.
1: Great. So the very first Pasuk in the parsha tells us, names a few people, and the ones we're gonna focus on are Datan and Aviram, who are from the tribe of Ruvain, the eldest tribe of the Israelites. And it seems that Datan and Aviram, their major problem here is the political failure of Moshe as a leader. And after all, they turn around and say, we were only supposed to be in the desert for a few months. Moshe, you were supposed to take us into the promised land. And here we are with this catastrophe, now finding ourselves in the desert for 40 years.
0: Okay, so one group looks at the situation of the nation and sees Moshe as a failed political leader. We're supposed to come to the land of Israel. If I'm correct, they even describe the land of Egypt as a land of milk and honey. So they really, Moshe, now that you have not get us across the finish line, your whole project was a mistake from the beginning, you never should have taken us out of this wonderful place we call Egypt. Wow, very hard to hear those words. Okay, so that's group one. What's group two?
1: Group number two, I would say, is largely Levim. The pasuk doesn't tell us the names of who's involved here. It tells us that there were 250 Important people, right? Not so clear who that is, but definitely prominent people. And based on how the story develops, I think there's good reason to believe that many of those 250 were Levites, people from the tribe of Levi, who also are complaining about the religious structure of leadership here. And they feel aggrieved that Aaron... Moshe's older brother has been appointed as the head priest, and it's exclusively Aharon and Aharon's descendants who will have a stranglehold, as they might see it, on the priesthood, while they, as Levites, work as kind of the assistants to the priests in the Mishkan.
0: So this group is not upset necessarily about the fortunes of the people in the desert. They're upset about the quote unquote status quo that only Aaron gets and maybe our own sons get to do the really important. Work in the Mishkan have real access to the divine presence and they're kind of left on the outskirts.
1: That's what it seems based on how the psukim develop.
0: And so, what would you say is if the political claim is you failed, Moshe, we didn't cross the finish line, what do you understand at the heart of? of their claim? Like, why do they think it shouldn't be our own? What do you think is their theological justification?
1: I think there's a charge of nepotism here. You know, it's this power sharing is happening between two brothers, the political leadership going to Moshe and the highest role in the religious leadership going to our own. Moshe, why are you choosing your brother for this role? And actually, I think where we get a hint as to what's going on here, it comes in the way the people gang up on Moshe and Aaron in Pasuk Gimel.
0: Okay, so go ahead. Tell us how they articulate their critique of what Aaron gets to do. Okay,
1: so we've got, again, just to review, we've got Korach and we've got Datan and Aviram mentioned in Pasuk Aleph, and then in Pasuk Bet, we've got the mention of these 250. And then Pasuk Gimel begins, "Vayikhalu al Mosheva al Aharon. They gathered against or ganged up against Moshe and Aaron. Pasuk doesn't specify who the they is. I'd like to claim that the day is a combination of Korach, Datan Aviram from Shevet Ruvain, This 250 important people, which include the many of Levim who are upset. And they turn and they gang up on Moshe and Aaron and they make the following claim. or accusation, Vayomru Alehem. they say to Moshe and Aaron, Rav lachem, you have too much. I would suggest too much authority, too much power between you, Moshe and Aaron. Ki kol ha'eda kulam kedoshim v'tocham Hashem. The entire nation is holy and God is with all of us, says Rashi. We all stood at Har Sinai and received the Torah. Why are you elevating yourselves above everybody else? We all have a claim to Torah. We all have a shared claim to God. U titna asu al kahal Hashem. Why are you raising yourselves above the nation of God or the congregation of God?
0: This is sounding like a democracy protest. I wish I could understand what that would look like when groups of people believe that the leadership has taken on too much authority, both in the political sphere and the religious sphere. Hard to imagine what that might look like.
1: Yes. If only we lived not in Israel, maybe we would have a sense of what that is. Yeah, I think it has a familiar ring to it. And... I think part of what you see here is Korach's genius, because you have, as we described before, multiple factions who probably primarily care about different issues in different ways. And yet, this is a rallying cry that can unite all of them, right? This notion on the religious front, "Kulam Kadoshim V'Tocham Hashem." Why are you taking this religious realm and this religious mantle for yourselves? We all are kadosh, right? Is very resonant. And at the same time, this idea, "Madua Nasu, the same idea. Why, Moshe, do you think you deserve the authority over the whole nation? After all, you failed. Right. You failed on the political front. So Korach has found a motto, an umbrella claim that works for all these various factions and all the factions can get behind it and feel invested in this complaint. And I want to say we can become cynical and suggest that maybe this isn't justified or this is just a power grab. And I think that is one legitimate read. But it's not the only read. Right. It's not the only read. People can feel aggrieved and be aggrieved and feel that there is someone cornering the market in power and have a justifiable complaint.
0: And especially, I mean, they could say, listen, you commanded us kadoshim to you. You told us all to be holy, very egalitarian. And now you're telling me that, oh, no, only very few people have access to the ultimate holiness. There's a real powerful, legitimate claim. And even Datan Vaviram, you could say, listen, you told us at the beginning the purpose of our mission was to go into the land. That's why God took us out to fulfill the promise to the forefathers, and we didn't get there. So Moshe and own, both, on both of these perspectives, you could view them as really wanting what's best for everybody and saying, this isn't going to work, and we don't think it's justified. And it's interesting, whenever we disagree with people, We always question their motives, right? We always assume, well, I know in my case, my motives are always pure as the driven snow. And the people who argue with me are always these egomaniacal evil people who are only in it for themselves. And I suffer through that in my whole life. Well, it's
1: shocking to me that so many people have that same perspective. You're not alone in in that view of being justified. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, (laughs) clearly. So
0: it's murky here, but what you're helping us understand is that there are claims here, religious and political, that have legitimacy to them and deserve a response.
1: Yes, they could have legitimacy to them. I think it's a mistake to dismiss them automatically as for personal power or personal gain. That's a possibility. The other possibility, as you just suggested, is this sense of this is not working. And I just maybe would add one element to what you said, given that Parshat Shlach has just happened and the story of the spies has just happened. And now all of a sudden the future looks very different for these people than they thought it would. They're to be here for 40 years, it is a time to sort of reevaluate. Hey, this was a system maybe we thought would be okay before when we were going to be in the Midbar for a few months, and then our focus was going to be in entering the land and settling the land and establishing ourselves, etc. But now this construct has to live with us for the next 40 years. And it's kind of, I think, natural to then Take a step back and say, wait a second, do we actually believe in this construct? Do we think it can be successful? Do you think it could work? Do we want it to work this way? That's, again, given the context and also just a human nature point, right, that rebellions and grievances and machloket, right, debate never exist in a vacuum the context always plays a role. And here, in this case, I think it does for Korach, Datana viram, the and for Moshe, and the way that Moshe responds and reacts.
0: Yeah, the power of what set this all up is certainly present. So help us understand how you think Moshe responds.
1: I think it's worth saying how tough this is. I don't know how I would respond if I was Moshe. The first response is overwhelming despair, I would say. A bit of my interpretation of Pasuk Dalit here, but uh, Vayishma Moshe Vayipol al-Panav. Moshe hears these complaints and he just falls on his He's face. devastated. Devastated. Now, again, thinking about the previous context, right? Moshe in the previous story of the spies gave a task to important people, the heads of the tribes. They went to go do that task and they came back. And whether it's what they said or how they said it, those people were part of a catastrophe. Right? And it could be that in Moshe's head, that's part of what power sharing does, leads to catastrophe. Oh, that's so
0: interesting. It's Moshe's thinking, you want me to share power? My experience is when I give you guys any power at all, the whole thing falls apart. I should be taking more power back.
1: Moshe doesn't say that. I wouldn't put those words into oh, his but I mouth. Like it. I would say that there is perhaps a backdrop there that maybe helps us understand his despair, right? And this, oh my gosh, yet again, another round right? The cumulative toll of all these complaints and etc. So that, you know, very first reaction is just a human reaction. It's not an attempt to solve anything. It's just being a person, right? How does it feel to have these people come at me and gang up on me with this claim or accusation? And then you see... Moshe tried to address the aggrieved parties, right? So the first thing that he says, and the verse tells us in Pasuket, that Moshe is directing the statement to Korach and the Eda, which again, I will say is those 250 people, which include the Levim, right? And he says, you know what, we're going to set up a contest and all of you 250 who believe that you have the right to the Kuhunat, to the priesthood, are going to take the ketoret, which is a special incense that only kohanim are allowed to offer to God in the tabernacle.
0: And only when commanded, as we know for what happened to Aaron's sons. A number of weeks uh, right. ago. So
1: this is going to be an unusual contest and everybody's going to get their own makhtah, their own fire pan and their own ketoret and they're going to put it on their fire pan. They're going to see, is God going to accept it or not? So
0: fire pans at dawn and he's going to prove it to them. God's going to choose and maybe he even knows the horrible result of what happens when you use a fire pan in a way that God doesn't choose.
1: It's possible, right? It's definitely possible. So there's this outlining of the contest that's going to take place tomorrow, not on the spot, not right now, but the next day. And then you see, I would say, I don't know if it's a new tactic or an additional strategy with these Levim, where Moshe seems to try to talk them down. He presented the fire pan test that's going to happen the next day, but then he seems to address them, hoping that we won't get to the point of actually having this fire pan contest. And it's interesting, the words that Moshe uses when he talks to the Levim at the end there, he says, Rav lachem b'nei levi. Rav lachem. Moshe uses the same language that was used against him. He says, you have too much b'nei levi. I just want to remind you, b'nei levi, that you are being privileged with special right to work in the Mishkan. Perhaps you should be satisfied with that role. And then he continues talking and again reminds the Levim that... You have this special role. Why would you uvikashtem gamkuhuna? Right? Why would you desire or request really the priesthood as well? Maybe take a step back and gain a little bit of perspective.
0: Do you think he's trying to engage them in machloket now? In other words, is he now, after offering the fire pans, do you see this as him saying, "Okay, hold on, I put out the fire pans at dawn, but now I want to take a step back. Let's have a conversation. Let me tell you why I think." This is not a good idea for you. Is he hoping they're going to answer? Is he hoping they're going to say, you're right, forget the firepans, let's talk this out?
1: Well, let me ask you, Tzvi, what are the rules in a podcast? Is the person being interviewed allowed to turn a question around onto the moderator? I think
0: that's allowed. I'm looking at Jamal over there, and he's <laughs> nodding his head yes as well. Okay,
1: fantastic. I want to try to answer your question with a question, but it's not a rhetorical question. It's an actual question, which is to say, if you wanted to indicate to somebody that you are interested in engaging in a back-and-forth conversation... How would you do that?
0: Well, I guess you could say that by opening with the firepans, he really undermined his ability to engage in with the conversation by putting this contest out there first. Or maybe you could say he like showed them two paths, right? There's a path of winner takes all. And the one who loses, we can only imagine maybe they even know Either Aaron's going to die or they're going to die. And then he's saying, but I have this other path where I want to show you my arguments for why I think you're making a mistake and I'm ready to talk this out with you.
1: Right. So why I think you're making a mistake and I'm ready to talk this out with you are two separate elements, right? If I am in a conversation with you and I want to share with you, maybe from the really genuine goodness of my heart, why I think you're misguided here, I can list a whole bunch of facts and I can stop there. Or I can list a whole bunch of facts and then perhaps ask you, and what do you think? How do you feel? I don't see in this verse any indication that Moshe is interested in having a conversation with Levim or Korach, where he's making space or room or inviting them to say, we know we're assistants in the Mishkan, but here's why we think we deserve more. I don't think you see here necessarily, at least not an explicit indication, that Moshe is inviting a back and forth conversation, right? Beyond his enumeration of why he thinks they're misguided. But I think you can make a strong claim to say that perhaps in Moshe's mind, having that conversation or opening up that conversation would be misguided in and of itself.
0: Right, because maybe it's not a conversation. If you know going in, He's not going to relent. He's not going to move Aaron out. He's not going to split the kahuna up. Maybe there's no room for conversation. Maybe the most he can do is try to convince them, using his logic and his position to say, don't go there.
1: Or pause, rethink this, take some time. And I will say that I think Moshe's designating this firepan contest for the next day in that sense, does give Mene Levy and this, you know, this to these 250 perhaps a chance to cool down a little bit and not to rush into that contest. On the other hand, you might claim, well, Moshe rushed into offering this contest in the first place or presenting this contest in the first place. So I think you can Make a claim to say that the 250 in the Levim might be upset that perhaps they view Moshe as talking down to them yet again with his authority. And I think you can make a case to say, well, what else should Moshe do? Right. Maybe precisely what Moshe needs to do is to lean on his authority and remind everybody of their places. And then, of course, just circling back to the point you raised about motivation, which is always under the surface in every machloka. And people often determine, is it worth it to engage with this person or not, given what I believe their motivation to be? Does Moshe believe that the Levim and Korach and the 250 are actually interested in having a conversation? Or has he determined this is not about listening to one another. This is about power play that they've got. And that's really what they want.
0: And then it really can't get anywhere. And he's using two methods, a threat or a contest, really, which is a winner take all and an argument, but no conversation because we don't know why either because he's not interested or he thinks it won't help. Or maybe you can't have a conversation, as I said, when you're not really willing to change anything, then what's the point?
1: I think it's fair to acknowledge that we have not drawn any conclusions here thus far, and uh, maybe we should warn our listeners not to expect conclusions. Well, the podcast isn't (laughs) over.
0: We could have some last-minute insight that ties all this up in a nice little bow. Certainly. But but it looks like it's not happening.
1: Just to say that there is a lot that's unclear in this story.
0: So let's move over to Datan Vaviram, where we have a different interaction. And what's your take on what Moshe is doing there and about their response?
1: So, Datan and Aviram situation is really interesting. And I want to share a point that I learned from Rabbi Dr. Daniel Roth, who taught up her days for many, many years, who pointed out an ambiguity in a verse related to the dynamic between Moshe and Datan and Aviram. And here's the verse. We're jumping now to Pasuk Bet. Vayishlach <laughs> Moshe likro le Datan ve'aviram aliyav. Moshe shalach intentionally not translating that word at the moment, Moshe Shalach, to call to Datan and Aviram, Vayomru lona na'aleh, and they say, we're not coming. Now, Daniel pointed out that the word Shalach, right, the Shoresh, the root word, shin chet, it appears all over Tanakh many, many, many times, right, often translated as to send. However, there are different types of quote-unquote sendings. There is an invitation, is an option, right? I'm sending an invitation to you. And there is another type of sending, which is a summons, which is to say a demand. Right? And actually, it's unclear here what is Moshe's intention? What type of sending is Moshe doing? Is he inviting Datan and Aviram into a conversation, or is he sending them a summons demanding that they show up? Right? And actually, if you look at different translations of this verse, the translators recognize the ambiguity and they have to determine how to translate this word. So you have the art school translates it as Moses sent forth to summon Datan and Aviram. And the New JPS translation keeps it simple. Moses sent for Datan and Aviram. So what is Moshe's intention here? Is it a friendly invitation or is it a summons? And what you see at the end of the verse, although Moshe's intentions are unclear, it's quite clear how Datan and Aviram perceive Moshe's intention. Lona aleh, we are not going up. We are not going up to you. And you can imagine that if they interpret this as a summons, if we step into the shoes of the tananaviram for a moment, you can imagine them thinking to themselves, hey, Moshe, back in Pasuk Gimel, we express to you our sense that rav lachen, that you have too much authority and you are using that authority all over the place. And here you are after we just shared with you our concern. And once again, you're shoving your authority in our face by sending us a summons, right? And making demands on us as the head of this hierarchy of power, telling us you got to show up. And you can imagine how riled up they are. And what ends up happening in the next few verses is what is such a common feature in Machloket, and you alluded to it before, they actually revert to revisionist history. They start changing the facts around. Moshe, you failed leader who is once again shoving your authority in our face and making demands on us. Right? Is it not enough that you brought us from a land flowing with milk and honey? They're as if They're describing Egypt as some sort of paradise and you brought us here to die in the land. And then in the next verse, they get personal. And they go for a personal attack on Moshe. Even if you had brought us to a land flowing with milk and honey, even if you had succeeded and didn't fail us in the mission that you were supposed to accomplish by leading us there, even if you had brought us to a land flowing with milk and honey and given us possession of fields and vineyards, should you gouge out those men's eyes? Hard to understand quite what they're referring to here, but it seems as though there's a personal accusation against Moshe of abuse of power and authority, stealing what belongs to the people. And that seems to be how Moshe takes it, because in the next verse, in Tetvav, it's not, it's not that Moshe's angry. Rashi points out, he's hurt. He's personally hurt by these accusations. And he doesn't turn to Datan and Aviram to express that hurt. He turns straight to God. And he says, don't listen to them. I never took a thing from them. Ever.
0: So it seems then we are left with the same ambiguity, at least vis-a-vis all the characters. Who's open for a conversation and who's not? Is Moshe trying to have a conversation with anybody or convince anybody? Or does Moshe see no possibility for conversation and he's just trying to win and assert his authority? It's very hard to tell, was he inviting them to talk Or we back to the old problem, what's there really to talk about? He's not going to give them half his power. So there's a bind here. And I really just have two questions for you. Number one is, who are you sympathetic to in this story? When you read this, whose shoes do you find yourself filling?
1: Oh, gosh. I'm going to have to take the coward's way here and say both, because I genuinely feel that way. I think about Moshe, and I think, what is this poor man supposed to do? He's trying to lead a nation, and he's being attacked from all sides. And he's unclear on their motive. He has every reason to feel self-conscious about what they really want and about his leadership. He too suffered this trauma of the maraglim, of the spies, and now being a leader of a people for 40 years longer in the desert than he expected. And I can really sense and feel from him this desire to just quiet all these voices that are creating chaos. And let's work together, rather than fighting with one another, rather than aiming to get ahead. Let's just make our nation functional. Let's be able to live here together. And let's have a structure that works. And if you give it a chance, it can work right? You feel his frustration. Moshe doesn't want to sit in 100 committee meetings. He knows what happens when you bring everybody to a table. This can last for months. And is this really in good faith? Is it really a good faith argument that these people are making?
0: And he might believe God actually appointed him for the job, just to throw that <laughs> in into the mix the text too. says
1: it did happen, right. right? So I can really feel for Moshe in this instance.
0: And yet.
1: And yet, whatever the motivations of the complainers are, I think most people want to be taken seriously and want to feel as though the people in charge care about their perspective. And if that means sitting down and taking the time to have those committee meetings, yeah. And hearing suggestions that other people have, yes, right? I think rather than being shut down, I can understand why Datta Aviram, the 250, they need to be heard. And they need to know that the people who are currently in charge actually care about what they think, not just to check off the box of, okay, we've sat in that committee meeting, but let's have some back and forth here and really share our concerns, our fears, our hopes, our dreams, so that we can understand each other better.
0: So we only have a few minutes, but I want to hone in on something that you're pointing at, which is namely... The conversation as you described didn't happen, a back and forth, people feeling heard, all those things we love to talk about in theory about good conversations. And the question I have for you is number one, what do you think is necessary to have that kind of constructive disagreement? And number two, are there disagreements that should not be attempted to have a constructive dialogue about them? What do you think? Nice simple question to finish off.
1: Right, right. I do not think that every disagreement warrants a conversation because I don't think that every disagreement necessarily can have a productive conversation. You know, does every opinion deserve to be heard? You know, are there red lines? Are there people with whom I might say, I can't go there. I can't go to that topic or I can't be in conversation with this person, right? Because of what they believe is so beyond the pale. Those are all, I think, legitimate questions to be asked and person hopefully has the autonomous ability to decide what their own red lines are. But I also think that what we're seeing today, and it's not unique to today's age, but it's very front and center in today's age, is a sidelining, sort of a dismissal and demonization of the other.
0: Someone say canceling, is that a word you might want to use? I just invented that myself. I'm thinking of trying that out. But
1: it's sort of where people's red lines are moving closer and closer so that more and more people are on the other side of that red line.
0: And mean by red line, there are more and more people I won't even have the conversation with.
1: Right, and that I think is a troubling trend.
0: So what do you think you need to have a tough conversation? What would you say for yourself are the guidelines or the opening assumptions that people need to go in with?
1: I'll tell you the questions that I ask myself, and I'm very curious to hear questions you might ask yourself or how you would answer this question. I think one of the questions I ask myself is, do I have the capacity right now to engage constructively? And for me, one of the key elements that I wonder about when I think about my capacity is, do I have time and the headspace to actually listen? I can listen without really listening. Am I listening with the intent of refuting or am I listening with the intention of trying to understand? I mean,
0: am I really open to learning something here? Right. Okay, that's number one.
1: Which, by the way, I'll just say it does not mean that I feel that I must walk away agreeing with this no, other person. No, I understand what you said, but you're open. But am I in a place, mentally and emotionally and time-wise, right? The capacity, do I have the bandwidth to actually listen and be curious to listen with curiosity, rather than to listen with the intention to refute or to crush the other person in return with my, you know, brilliant comebacks. Talking
0: to learn, but not talking to defeat.
1: Right. Okay. Exactly. That's a good one. The other, I would say, for me, is really primary: is the relationship piece. Is it worth it to me? And here. I think it actually cuts in both directions. And sometimes, in some instances, I think if I really care about a relationship and I want to preserve the relationship or deepen the relationship, perhaps the thing that I need to do is not have a conversation about this hot topic because I already know it's going to be explosive and could end the relationship or severely damage the relationship without the possibility to recover. But on the flip side... I might look at the relationship and say, precisely because I want to preserve and deepen the relationship, I must engage in a conversation with this person about this big thing that we disagree on. Because if we don't, we could wind up with a situation where our relationship becomes superficial, Where there's this big important thing that's important to both of us and it's this elephant in the room and we're walking on eggshells around one another just to never, ever go there. And then what's left of the relationship? It could theoretically just dwindle into nothing. And what a shame that would be, given that I really genuinely care about this person or want or need this relationship. And so there are risks in both directions. For me, I think it's sort of a case-by-case basis.
0: Can you think of an example where you stretched your red line to have a conversation, even though you knew it would be very hard for you to have that conversation?
1: Yes, but I will say I didn't do it on purpose. I fell into a conversation, and I'm glad I did, but it was several years ago in the height of COVID, and I uh, wound up in a conversation about COVID vaccines. And I was talking to somebody who vehemently had not gotten vaccinated for COVID. This was here in Israel. And he felt that the government was putting unfair pressure on people to do something that should not be demanded of them to do. And the penalties for not getting the vaccine, et cetera, were unfair. I will say that as the conversation went that direction, this topic came up. I could feel my emotions rising because and I don't know if this is accurate or not, but what it felt to me at the time was here you are minimizing the terrible effects of COVID-19. Here I am with a friend who lost both of his parents, you know, at the very beginning of COVID. They both died. Here I am having people in my life whom I love who are suffering financially as a result of this pandemic and people who are suffering emotionally emotionally. And it feels to me as though you are minimizing the consequences of this pandemic.
0: So why were you glad you did it?
1: Because I wound up with a better understanding of why he felt so strongly about not getting vaccinated. And I saw that there was a certain commonality between us that at the bottom, at heart, there was a lot of fear that we were both carrying around. His was fear of getting the vaccine. And living in a society that forces you to get the vaccine. And mine was the fear of not getting vaccinated and having people around me who would not get vaccinated. And it was a tough conversation, I think, for both of us. Both of us got our backs up. But I walked away feeling far less angry about this other perspective. Now I felt just as strongly about mine, but I felt I understood him better. And I felt like we had a place... Of departure from which we could talk about this which ultimately was fear
0: and you could be passionate about your opinion without having to come along with anger at those who took the opposite opinion that's a great gift i think
1: yeah i think in this case it was really helpful and at the same time i recognize that when the stakes are high and when things are personal you know you don't always walk away from a conversation feeling enriched or feeling as though the temperature has been turned down but there's a possibility
0: So I would say for myself, just before we close, I have tried to take on a commitment to not walking around with anger either towards the Haredi population or the anti-Zionist population. I'm very triggered by both. I think there's a lot of fear that comes up for me. But for me, I frame this whole thing as a personal challenge to stay in relationship. That if I take Ahavat Yisrael seriously, it doesn't mean just loving those fellow Jews that I agree with or even like but it has to create a space to care about those even when I disagree with them about so much and actually feel a lot of fear about what they're advocating. But I think that that's my own personal challenge I'm trying to take on in this spirit of not carrying a lot of anger and leaving space to stay in relationship with people because I feel that we're connected whether we like it or not you know all these conversations that didn't happen and all the ambiguities around why they didn't happen and could they have happened i feel like this parsha is asking us these very hard questions that you summed up for us so nicely Can they happen? Should they happen? Are there times these conversations are actually negative? The job of leadership to both show authority and stay open. This is tough stuff.
1: Tough stuff that is about as relevant today as it was then. I think
0: we are struggling with these issues today. Who should I be talking to? How should I be talking to them? Does talking confer legitimacy and so on and so on and so on? So here we are. A few thousand years later, and we are still struggling with authority, leadership, holiness, who's on the right side of history and all the rest and how hard it is to have conversations when those existential things are at the center.
1: Yeah, a term that's often associated with this parsha is the term machlokat lshem shamayim or lo lshem shamayim, disagreement for the sake of heaven or not for the sake of heaven, which we can loosely understand also as constructive conflict versus destructive conflict. And the Mishnah in Avot, Parakhei Mishnah Yadayin, right 517, says that one distinction between a constructive disagreement versus a destructive disagreement is sofiyah hitkayem that disagreements that are constructive will continue to endure. And one understanding of that is if it really matters, right, if it's an issue of actual importance, then that issue over time is going to continue to crop up again and again and again. It's not just going to disappear because it is actually critical.
0: So in spite of Pirkevo, you're saying this machloket here may in fact actually be in some form or another a machloket l'shem shemaim. You heard it here first, folks. Sethi crowd taking on the sages and pure vote. Well, look, this has been yeah, go ahead, I'm sorry. Just
1: to clarify, the questions that arise, the questions the that questions, you, the questions it. that emerge Motivation, from the Motivation, who can know? Right. right. The questions that emerge from it, I think, are questions that will exist forever.
0: Wow. Very powerful. And I guess the one thing I'm learning from you right now is the machloket itself, maybe we're the ones who determine if it's the shame shemaim or not. In other words, it may not be the issue but it might be the way we think about the issue and approach the issue and approach the other, that maybe it's in our hands to make it Lashem Shemayim or not. I have to really think about that a lot more. Sefi, thank you so, so much for sharing your wisdom and your insights. And it was just great having you on this podcast.
1: Fun times. Thanks to me.
0: Okay. That's it, everybody. From Pardes in Jerusalem, we want to wish you a Shabbat Shalom, and we really hope that you will listen next week. And again, if you have any feedback for me, please email me at Z-V-I-H at pardes.org.il. Until then, be well and Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.